Thank you, Mark, for that. <clears throat> and good evening, brothers and sisters of Christ Church. I uh, want to thank you for this opportunity to come and bring the Word of God to you this evening. And uh, we continue on in our series of one another's this evening. We began the series with the command to love one another. In a very real way, each of the following one another's we have looked at, such as forgive one another, stir up one another, have fellowship with one another, and most recently to serve one another. Each of these are expressions of Christian love and essentially are derivative of the command for us to love one another. So too is the command for our topic tonight to encourage one another from our text this evening. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, we will be looking at chapter 4 mainly, but also a brief stop in chapter 5. In our text this evening, I want to, uh, to draw your attentions to verses 13 through 18, but specifically to verse 18 and some following verses in chapter 5. Now, while it's not my intention to do a, do a full exposition of this text, it is a fitting passage that helps us to establish the context for biblical encouragement and the way that we should go about encouraging one another. So I have three main points that I would like to cover from our passage. First is encouragement defined. Secondly, our need for encouragement. And finally, the encouragement of Christ. Encouragement defined, our need for encouragement and the encouragement of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Jumping down to chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, we get a continued encouragement and exhortation from Paul. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you have brought to us your word. And this evening, as we come to your word, we come to your word as a humbled people, often confused, often facing adversity in our lives, often needing encouragement. You indeed are the God of encouragement, and we come to you seeking that encouragement even now. We ask, Lord God, that you would open our hearts and mind to receive your word, 
that the Holy Spirit would drive your word into our hearts. It would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that we might be made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, which is your will for all of your children. So we become, come before you even tonight, Lord, asking for these things and praying them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What is encouragement? This is something that is often valued in the world today, whether inside of the church or outside of the church. I would guess that you wouldn't meet many people who wouldn't like a word of encouragement. Even when sometimes it's not given sincerely, we would answer back, oh, I appreciate that. Thank you for that word of encouragement. Thank you for saying that thing. Perhaps a better question in the context of our passage tonight is, do you see yourself as an encourager? Perhaps you're prone to leave off encouragement to those who are especially gifted in encouragement. And it is true that there are those in the church, according to Romans chapter 12, that are given gifts in special measure, these gifts of grace, and they are exhorted to employ them. Perhaps somebody like Barnabas comes to mind. After all, he is called the son of encouragement. And for his part, in the early years of establishing the church, we see this encouragement time and time again. However, we see in our text tonight that Paul instructs these Thessalonians, all of them, and by extension all of us, to encourage one another and to build one another up. Even so, some of us fail to encourage one another because at times we may not really know what encouragement is. We may think that we know what encouragement is, but we may not have paid too much mind to what the Bible describes as encouragement, what Paul here is exhorting us to and, in fact, encouraging us to be. So we need to understand what encouragement is in the biblical sense. Sometimes we can think of encouragement, at least from our, uh, our life in general, or at least in the world, as just a, a, a word of comfort or a word of affirmation. Something that we say to make someone feel better about themselves or, or their situation. One dictionary defines encouragement as words or behavior that give someone confidence to do something. Another defines it this way, the action of giving someone support confidence, or hope. It's a little better. And while these definitions are not wrong in themselves, they are inadequate to describe the richness of Christian encouragement. The word here used is is translated in several different ways throughout scriptures. And in its various forms, it speaks to one who comforts. It speaks to one who is an advocate that, that comes alongside another, an intercessor, a consoler. So Christian encouragement is not merely a pat on the back, not a mere word of hope in the fate of a good outcome, but of coming alongside another, pointing out the evidences of grace in their lives to help them see that God is with them, It points a person to God's promises and assures them that all that they face 
is under his control. Encouragement is shared with the hope that lifts their hearts towards the Lord and deepens their hope and confidence in Christ and his promises. Throughout the New Testament, we see that encouragement was a regular part of the early church's life together. In Acts, time and time again, uh, we see that one of Paul's primary concerns was with the encouragement of the various churches that he established along his missionary journeys. We see that the churches in turn encouraged Paul and each other through various trials. They shared scripture-saturated words with each other to spur one another along, to spur one another along in faith. We see in Acts chapter 14 that though trials and tribulations should come, that we are encouraged to increase our faith and we are encouraged to seek God towards that end. In Romans, Paul encourages the church there that they would have hope and that they would have unity as a people. We see all throughout Acts that we are encouraged to joy that our strength in the Lord is encouraged, that in Hebrews chapter 10, that our fruitfulness is encouraged. And even in this book, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that our faithfulness itself is encouraged. And even from our text today, they are grounded in the promises of the Lord, and they are uh, in the certainty of Christ's return. So that we see that encouragement was and is essential to the life of the church. It is an essential way of fulfilling the command to love one another. So having seen in part some of the richness of what what biblical encouragement is and how it was to be practiced throughout the early church, we may ask ourselves, why is encouragement so important? Why do we see encouragement being brought up over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture, by the way, but especially in the New Testament church? Well, as we've seen in our text today, and perhaps as we experience in our own lives, encouragement often is needed in times of adversity. God commanded his people to encourage each other because he knows that we need it. In the Gospel of John, in uh, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus warned that in this world you will have trouble, which he then followed up with a much-needed encouragement, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When Paul and Silas preached the gospel to these Thessalonians, it was at a time that this church was established in adversity, in a pagan town. It was probably made up of mostly Gentiles. There was no real Jewish background with which they could grasp and hold on to and bring over into the gospel as Paul was teaching it. We see that when Paul and Silas went and preached, that a jealous mob rose up against them. Even when Paul and Silas left the persecution in Thessalonica behind and went to Berea, the mob was so outraged that they followed them even there. The Bible tells us that they went and followed and said that they were agitating and stirring up the crowds against them. And while Paul and Silas could leave town to continue on their missionary journey, these Thessalonians would be left behind as an infant church. And there was some concern on Paul's part that he had to leave so quickly. 
And so like so many of his churches, this church was close to the heart and the mind of Paul and in his prayers. In chapter 1 and verse 6, we read that they received the word in much affliction. And they would now have to hold fast in much affliction. They would need much encouragement from each other and not mere encouragement, but encouragement from the Lord. A kind of encouragement that lifts their hearts up to remember the promises of Jesus Christ as offered in the gospel that Paul brought to them. This would be the thing that would need to to bind them together, not only in love, not only in service, but in encouragement. In the end, they needed real, meaningful, and compelling encouragement. Our text this morning is often the subject of controversy over the various views of the end times. There's many positions that people take, and there's been many battles and much ink spilled over this passage in certain ways as we kind of think along eschatological topics. But I want to bring your attention to the fact that this text is primarily pastoral, not theological, although there is rich theology here. To put it simply, this text is meant to be an encouragement in itself. The intent of the Apostle Paul is not to give a detailed explanation on eschatology, but it is rather to comfort, that is, encourage troubled, grieving, sorrowing hearts. Specifically, the Thessalonian church wondered about the return of Jesus, the resurrection to come, and what was going to happen to their members who had already died. This is not really a pedantic question, at least not for them. They had real questions about what happened to those who had died in between the time that we received the gospel and the time of now that we are still waiting for the Lord. If you remember, this church was established quickly. It was still young. Perhaps at the time when Paul came and this church was founded and the believers gathered together, nobody had yet died. So they were troubled by this, by this question. What happens to Christians who die before the Lord's return? It was a painful question for them, and it was one that was on their hearts because they're suffering in grief for fear that their loved ones who have died are going to miss a great event. Now, Paul certainly made sure that they understood that Jesus was coming back to take his people with him. In chapter 1, you will notice in verse 9 and 10 that it says of the Thessalonian Christians that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. They were living in anticipation that Jesus would come. It seems rather reasonable from this context that they actually thought that he would come very soon in their lifetime. And that's what posed their question to Paul, because some of them had died. Now, commentators have different explanations as to what exactly was troubling these Thessalonians. As I just said, it was clear that Paul taught them that the Lord would come and that he would return for his people. They had faith in that. But the question that might have been in their minds, and several of them are offered by different commentators, 
Was their death perhaps some kind of a judgment where the Lord chastened them? Took their life and therefore forfeited the experience of the Lord's coming? Was there some secret sin in their life? And that's why they died. Would they somehow not participate in all of the gathering together and the wonderful trip to heaven? Maybe less severe than those things. Would they simply remain bodiless spirits, never knowing of the transformation of the body into the likeness of Christ? Would they somehow be considered lesser saints? Were they not as loved as the rest who would live to see the Lord's return? The point is, in all of this, whatever the actual problem might have been, is this whole matter caused them trouble and caused them to grieve. So in a sense, with as much anticipation as they had for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they also looked upon this event with some fear, some trepidation, some question about those who had fallen asleep before them. Sometimes we can get caught up in passages like this and forget the main point. That the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promise of his return is of great encouragement to us. It should increase our faith and love for Jesus. By this truth, we are sanctified in Christ. So the Apostle Paul writes to encourage them and alleviate their grief. And we see what Paul thought of this doctrine of Christ's return. He didn't spend so much time, at least not here, putting together all of the pieces. He didn't put together a treatise with all of the details of how the Lord would return and the timing of the Lord's return. He focused on what most of us should focus on when talking about this topic. That we await the return of the Lord. That we anticipate the return of the Lord. That we would be glorified and caught up with him along with our loved ones who have passed before us. So that we could be united to the church full of brothers and sisters in Christ from all time and eternity. What did Paul think of Christ's return, his resurrection? What did he think this should foster among Christians? He thought that it should foster encouragement. Whatever your position is on the end times, if it doesn't foster mutual encouragement of other Christians or empower you to live a life with eternity in mind, you have not properly understood your position on the end times. You have not understood the greatest import of the Bible's teaching of the return of Christ. Now those are interesting conversations. And next to everybody else, I love to talk about them as well, but we cannot lose sight of what's important in that whole conversation, and far too many people do. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. This is important because Paul is teaching, or, or he is pointing to a teaching. He is pointing to doctrine. He is pointing to important things. So while I encourage you not to get too caught up in these kind of doctrines of last days that you lose sight of what's really important, I also don't mean to say that there are very important things that are connected to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which have great import to us in our daily lives. 
Proper doctrine leads to proper devotion. We need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. So Paul says, I don't want you to be informed. That you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed in such a way that they grieve like people who have no hope. He doesn't want them to grieve like people in the world, like the pagan society and culture that these Thessalonians were in the midst of. So the people outside of the kingdom of God who do not have the promises of God, who see death as a final and permanent thing. You see, what you believe about your own eschatology, about your own last days, affects how you live your life today. It is important that we have these most pertinent questions answered without getting lost and caught up in smaller things. And so, like these Thessalonians, we too can become confused and fearful concerning the circumstances around us. We, like them, live in a broken world where everything calls itself towards selfishness and despair. It causes us to turn in on ourselves, to look at our lives and this life only. Sin steals our joy, our bodies break down, we lose loved ones, our resolves can weaken in the face of adversity. But this is the life that Christ has called us to. We are promised suffering, 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us. We will suffer persecution, John, uh, Jesus tells us in John 15. And trials of various kinds, James tells us, will be in our path in this life. But in the midst of these things, we are called not merely to encourage one another, but to encourage one another with these words. We are, into, we are to encourage one another with the truth of God's word in eager anticipation of Christ's return. In essence, we are to encourage one another with the gospel. It is the truth of Christ's return. It is the truth of God's word in total that we put our hope in. Unlike the world, we don't have hope for the sake of merely having hope. We have an object of our hope. We have an object in our Lord and Jesus Christ with which we can point and encourage people to look to. And in pointing to Jesus Christ, I'd like to show you the encouragement of Christ. Because in Jesus, we have no better example than one who encourages another. Jesus on the night before he would be put to death, gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And in John's Gospel, we have uh, long discourses that we uh, are made privy to. And I think one of the un- something that helps us to understand this better is that this is the Jesus who is the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who came down and put on flesh to live in the world like unto us, who suffered in every way that we have, yet was without sin. The huge condescension of Jesus to come down from his heavenly throne to put on flesh and to live a life such as we do 
should be enough of an encouragement on its own. But he did more than that. Knowing that in just a few hours that he would suffer at the hands of his own creation, that he would be mocked and ridiculed, that he would be beaten and crucified, that his own disciples and his own friends would leave him, that his own mother would look upon his condition, look upon what happened to him. He knew all of these things. And yet this night, he encouraged the disciples. They had not yet, known, yet made known, and in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, he began to make clear what would happen to him and why it was that he needed to do this. And as they began to understand, we see that there was some fear and trepidation and misunderstanding in their own life. In John chapter 14, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to walk down this chapter really quickly and, um, and close with this. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. So we see this wonderful word of encouragement from the Lord. And just as Paul said that we are to encourage each other with these words, that is, the words of the return of the Lord, here we see Jesus himself doing that very thing. In the context of his going away and in the context of his promises of coming back, he is encouraging the disciples. Further down in verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and be, uh, will be in you. I'd like to call attention to in the very beginning, we said that this is a very rich word in the scriptures. That that's translated in our passage as encourager. Here, Jesus identifies the Holy Spirit as a helper, it is the same word that we have in our text today. You see, the Holy Spirit is the encourager. And he is with us forever. Here he is also called the Spirit of Truth. And so we see that the Holy Spirit's ministry is tied to encouraging and comforting and being an advocate for us. And that is tied to the truth of God's word. Jesus goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You see, there is this promise. In a little while you will not see me, and then you will see me. That he will not leave us as orphans. This is our great hope. And we have great encouragement from the fact that Jesus has already given us the Holy Spirit. A down payment, as you, if you will. On the promises that he has made. We, unlike those who came before the cross have an assurance that they didn't quite have, at least not as vividly as we have today. And we have this Holy Spirit who dwells in us because we are not left as, in orphans, as orphans. Excuse me. 
Further down in John chapter 16, he says, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the encourager, the comforter, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, we don't often always understand everything that we should. And we're not often privy to everything that the Lord is doing, especially in the midst of adversity, especially in the midst of pain, especially in the midst of loss. We can become confused. His disciples were in this very condition. And Jesus, looking on them with sorrow filling their heart, he tells us, and it tells them, and tells us by extension, that it is to our advantage that he goes away. Because then the helper, the great encourager, will come to us. Jesus goes on to say, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We see no clearer expression of this than Paul's ministry when he brought the gospel to this Thessalonian church. You see, the Holy Spirit had come, just as Jesus had promised. And he had brought the truth of the word of God to the apostles and to the various missionaries at the time to bring that truth to a lost world. You see, we are to be encouraged, and we are to encourage one another. We are encouraged to encourage one another in such a way that we bring the truth of God's word to them, that we exhort them in the word of God, that we help them with assurances that are found in the promises of the word of God. For it is in the word of God that we are shaped into the image of Christ, that we are further and further sanctified so that we might have a better grasp and a better understanding of the truth of God's word so that we can become better encouragers. And so, Christ Church, I encourage you this evening to stick close to the word of God so that we can stick close to each other and be encouragers as we fulfill the great commandment to love one another. Let's pray.